three of Advent, we've been trying at First Baptist Church to walk slowly to the manger this year, not to be, not to be surprised on Christmas morning, caught unaware, uh, but to walk slowly to the manger. We've been doing that uh, by a sermon series. First time I've preached a sermon series, an Advent sermon series, uh, where we've been trying to look at a character from the Christmas story each week to try to examine their encounter with Jesus and then uh, try to answer the question of the old Christmas carol, what child is this? And those little videos have been helping us do that, I think. And uh, we, we want to walk slowly. We want to walk carefully to the manger and not be in such a rush like we are most years. Uh, we started this journey by looking at the shepherds. And then last week we moved on to the magi. We, from their search for this new born king, we learned several important lessons. First, we learned that God has always and is still using very interesting means to cause people to search for the truth about Jesus. They saw a star in the sky and it launched them on this journey to find Jesus. And he is still doing things like that, giving dreams and visions and interesting encounters with people all around the world. And so because he's still doing that, we want to pray that he will continue to do that. We want to pray for specifically that he will give visions and dreams to people in Central Asia that will launch them on a journey to finally find Jesus. And we want to pray uh, along with that prayer that God will raise up workers to be there to help guide them on that journey, to teach them about the truth about Jesus, to point them to the gospel message. I want to update you. We talked a lot about our friends in Central Asia last week, and I want to announce to you with with, uh, gladness and joy that they've made it to the United States. Uh, They landed at about midnight last night, and we'll spend a couple weeks with her family before they come back up here. So praise the Lord. He took care of them in some big ways over the last he's taken care of them in some great ways over the last four years but specifically over the last 52 hours or so as they've been traveling it's it's been remarkable we also learned from the magi that when jesus is revealed there will be varying reactions some like herod will respond with violent opposition some like the jewish leadership will respond with rejecting indifference. And others, like the Magi, will bow down and worship him. And we want to respond to Jesus like they did. We want to bow down and worship him. We want to give gifts to him. The question of the week was, what child is this? Well, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so let's bow down and worship him and let's rise and serve him with our lives. I have some notes uh, today to try to clarify something that, that uh, I said last week that I had a little bit of debate with some folks about this week about whether the Magi found uh, the family in a house in Bethlehem or Nazareth. And uh, if you want to have that debate sometime this week, we'll have that debate. Uh, But I'll give you the short story. It was in Bethlehem. It was in Bethlehem. (laughs) Just like I said last week. (laughs) I don't have time to have the debate with you today. This week, we're going to look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I made a comment last week in talking about the Magi and how they found, um, they came to the house in Bethlehem and they found Mary and the child and they bowed down and worshipped him. And I felt, and I really stressed that they worshipped him. And I felt a little bad about that. Maybe I was too snarky. Maybe it was a little bit unnecessary. But I want to tell you that as I started studying this week in preparation for Mary and this discussion about Mary and her encounter with Jesus, and, and I began to read more and more of what the 
the Roman Catholic Church and Roman Catholics throughout history have said about Mary, uh, naming her as co-redemptrix, um, referring to her as mother of God, seeing her in some mediatorial role in salvation. Uh, I don't feel as bad about it now as, as I did then. And so I, I want to agree with John Phillips, a New Testament scholar who said this about Mary. He said, there is a big difference between the Mary of human religion and the Mary of divine revelation. He goes on and says very pointedly, the Mary of Rome is not the Mary of the Bible. And I agree with that. And and we are Protestants here. And we have some differences with the Roman Catholic Church and its theology, particularly when it comes to Mary and her role, not only in history, but in salvation. And I want to be clear about those things today, but... With all of that said, I do not intend today to treat Mary with any kind of disrespect. In fact, I think that Protestants are often guilty of making the opposite mistake of the Roman Catholic Church. If the Roman Catholic Church lifts her up too high, the Protestant Church oftentimes lowers her down too far and treats her with disrespect almost in counter to Roman Catholic teaching. We will see Mary today from the scriptures as one who received much grace much unmerited, undeserved, unconditioned grace. And we will see Mary today as one who responded to God with humility and who served him obediently. And for that, she deserves respect and honor. But we will not give her more than she is due. Maybe more precisely, we will not give to her what only the Lord Jesus Christ deserves. So we're going to treat her with respect, but we're going to keep her in the proper proper biblical place, I hope. So let's read together in Luke chapter 1. Do you have your Bible this morning? Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at one scene in Mary's life. Um, We're going to make references to several others. You'll have to turn some pages occasionally. Um, But one scene in particular is where we're going to spend most of our time in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, this is what God's word says. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing such remarkable grace to Mary. 
Thank you for blessing her and using her to bring forth and raise the Messiah. Thank you for giving us, her, as an example of humble obedience in the face of difficult circumstances. Help us to have faith like she had. Help us to obey like she obeyed. Help us to treat her and her story properly today, to give respect and honor where it is due, but to guard against giving her what only the Lord Jesus Christ deserves. And we pray this to you, Father, in his name. Amen. Amen. So there are going to be two big ideas today as we look at this part of Mary's story. One is that Mary was the recipient of grace, much grace, abundant grace. And two, that Mary demonstrated her faith through obedience in difficult times. So she received much grace and she demonstrated her faith through obedience in difficult times. First, let's talk about her as the recipient of much grace. Everything about the introduction to Mary in this text screams humble and ordinary. Look at it in verse 26 and 27. It says, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. It's humble and ordinary. She was a young peasant woman from a village that was despised. Nazareth didn't have a great reputation. It wasn't known as a place that was producing influential people. And Nazareth was situated in a region called Galilee that had a similar reputation. It was known as a place for poor people and farmers and uneducated folks. She is from a place like this. And the text says that she was engaged to be married. Uh, some of your translations may say betrothed. Um, and that's a big idea that we're going to talk about in, in a little bit. She was engaged to be married to a man who had an interesting family tree. We will, we will definitely affirm that. And we'll talk more about that next week as we look at Joseph. But he was nonetheless from this insignificant little hole in the ground called Nazareth. And the introduction to Mary, very humble, very ordinary... And our introduction to her stands in stark contrast to the introduction we received to some other folks in the scriptures. In fact, when I was thinking about this, I thought about Noah and how God in his word refers to Noah as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, one who walked with God. That's from Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, refers to Noah as, quote, a herald of righteousness. So, so sometimes when there are people of especially high character and especially righteous, God will give them some credit for that. He will give them some um, acknowledgement of that in his word, like he did with Noah, like he does with Job in chapter 1, verse 1, when he says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless. He was upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. In fact, more specifically, Luke does this earlier in chapter 1. When he talks about Mary's aunt and uncle, Elizabeth and Zacharias, he piles on language to talk about their righteousness, to talk about their blamelessness. Look at it. Uh, maybe it's on the same page, starting in chapter 5. I mean, chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. Luke says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But 
they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. And I'm telling you all of this to say that if Mary had been somehow without sin, or if she had somehow been unstained even by original sin, don't you think the author would have told us something about that? In fact, specifically an author who is inclined to tell us something about the moral nature of certain characters, don't you think if there was such a big idea that Mary was sinless or not even tainted by original sin, that the author would have told us about that somewhere in the scriptures, but you cannot find it in the Bible? That would seem like a noteworthy detail to me, but it is not found in the story. And not only is her introduction humble and ordinary, but the statement that is made to her by the angel makes it clear that what is happening to her is a gift. What is taking place in her is undeserved and unexpected. Look at verses 28, 29, and 30. It says, and coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. Now, if you, if you are a writer in your Bible, you should write something or circle or indicate somehow that word favored. The angel says to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. That seems significant too. She didn't say, of course, I'm favored, I'm sinless and completely righteous. She was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Circle that word, favor. The word that is translated here as favor and favored is the key Greek word charis, which is the key Greek word in the New Testament for grace. It means undeserved unmerited favor. It is a gift that is not deserved. And so the angel approaches her and he doesn't say, greetings one of great merit who deserves such an action. He greets her and says, you're the one who's about to see, receive grace. You're the, about the one, you're the one who's about to receive much grace, overwhelming grace in fact, not something that she uh, deserves. It is highly significant that Mary is the recipient of a gift. She is the recipient of grace. Daryl Bach, who is a New Testament scholar, says it well when he says this. She is now honored by God, not because of anything, uh, not because of her own merit or because she has done anything, but simply because she is the chosen vessel of this demonstration of God's grace. So let's be clear. First of all, Mary was the recipient of grace. Mary was the recipient of undeserved favor, not sinless, not immaculate. She was the recipient of grace. And she is the recipient of grace, not the dispenser of grace. And let's be clear, we need grace like she needed grace. We need grace. It is our only hope. And let's be clear, God gives grace. So there is hope. For all who will trust in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. There is hope because of God's grace. He is the one who gives grace to people who do not deserve it. And I, for one, do not deserve it. But I'm glad to be the recipient of his grace, right? So big idea number one is that Mary was the recipient of grace, much grace in fact. Number two is that Mary demonstrated her faith through obedience in difficult circumstances. She demonstrated her faith through obedience in difficult circumstances. Look at verses 31, 32, and 33. 
the message that the angel delivers to her is absolutely incredible. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, all these phrases that are used to identify Jesus are huge, right? To identify the child here are huge. He refers to, he says, you'll name, you'll name him Jesus, Savior. He'll be known as Son of Most High God. He'll be given the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will have no end. I believe with all confidence you could spend a week a week preaching on each one of those things the angel says to her about the Lord Jesus Christ. But the bottom line is this. He is telling her, you will give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. You will give birth to the long-awaited Messiah for generation after generation, hundreds and hundreds of years. Your people have been waiting for this, and you will bring him forth. That's a big deal. It's an incredible message that the angel delivers to her. And Mary is initially puzzled by all of this. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? That's a pretty legitimate question, right? Wait a minute, how could I be pregnant? I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. And that gives us, her question here gives us an opportunity to make a little bit of application. And it's this, there is a way to question God. There is a way to question God that is helpful and appropriate. And there's a way to question God that is absolutely not helpful nor appropriate. And Mary questions God. It seems to be helpful and appropriate. She says, how could this possibly be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answers her, and we'll look at that in a minute. But this same angel had visited one of her relatives not too long ago. In fact, look back at chapter 1, verse 8. We've mentioned these two already before, Elizabeth and Zacharias. This same angel, before he visited Mary, visited them. And Zacharias was a priest. Like, he's the guy that should have been on top of things. He should have known what was going on. He should have had great faith in the Lord. But you're going to see that he questions God in a way that is not helpful and is not appropriate, and it is demonstrated by the angel's reaction to his question. Look at chapter 1, verse 8 uh, through 23. This is a long passage. But it's God's word, so we, we have time for it, right? Now, it happened that while he was performing, that's Zacharias the priest, he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, which is a, a really big deal. Like, he didn't get to do that all the time if you were a priest. So he was pumped about that, no doubt. It says, and a whole, the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside uh, at the hour of the incense burning. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him, like it does everyone who sees an angel, right? But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people for the Lord. Listen to verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? 
for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in the proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back to his home. There's a way to question God that is helpful and appropriate. A way that really seeks answers and deeper understanding and has a posture of submission and obedience. And there is a way to ask questions of God that is not like that. A way that doubts Him. A way that accuses Him. A way that is ugly before Him. And it seems like Zacharias had that attitude in his heart, which is why the angel responds the way he does to that attitude. And Mary seemed to have humility in her, her heart, which is why the angel responds to her with a deeper explanation. And she submits, at the end of the day, to His Lordship. So here's what I'm getting at. It's okay to ask questions of the Lord. It's okay to go to Him and say, what, what, what does this mean? How can this be? As long as the attitude of your heart is one of humility and trust and a desire to grow in your understanding. You, you face this the same way, right? You, you experience this all the time. You have people in your life that come to you with questions. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody else. They come to you with questions. And some of them you know really want the answers. Some, some of them, you know, really want to grow in their understanding and you wanna, they want to have a meeting of the minds. And you have other people in your life who come to you with questions and they just want to fight. But, or, or am I the only one that experiences that? <laughs> I, I experience that. I'm telling you, when you go before the Lord and you have questions, make sure you have questions like Mary did. With that kind of posture of your heart and not like Zacharias. Because you may come out unable to speak for the next nine months which is exactly what happened to him. So, their hearts were in different places. They had questions. And for Mary, the angel clarifies in verse 35 through 37. Look what it says. Chapter 1, verse 35 to 37. It says, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. That's a great statement right at the end, is it not? Nothing is impossible with God. Mary, when she heard this, was thinking only in normal, natural terms. But God intended to do something abnormal and supernatural in her life. And he can do this, right? He's the one who spoke. And light came to be. He's the one who declares things and that which did not exist begins to exist. God can do the impossible. And he's going to do it in her life. And she doesn't, she doesn't expect it. She can only think, how could I possibly be pregnant? I'm a virgin. And he says, I'm going to do something incredible in you. So that everyone will know this child is mine. He is the God of the impossible. But I want you to see here that what the angel says to her is dangerous. This is a part of the story that we might not pick up because our culture is so different from theirs. This idea that the betrothed little girl will be pregnant is scandalous. At best, 
at least it's scandalous. It is potentially deadly for her. And we don't feel the weight of that. Because when this happens in our day and age, we give folks a, a, a reality show. That's not the way it would have gone with her. In fact, Jewish betrothal, just so that you understand this, Jewish engagement had two parts. The first part was a formal engagement. That's what Mary and Joseph had participated in at this point. That formal engagement includes a contract and the exchange of a bridal price. And the second part took place about a year later when they actually got married. But when they were betrothed, they were, for a lot of purposes, husband and wife. In other words, it took a divorce to dissolve that separation, but they did not live together and they did not sleep together until, they, until the wedding ceremony, okay? And so what takes place in this story happens between those two things. One scholar said that a virgin betrothed to a man discovered with child was in peril of her life. A virgin betrothed, found to be with child, was in peril for her life. She would have been tried, she would have been examined, and if found guilty, she would have been stoned to death. Stoned to death with the offended fiancé casting the first stone and then the rest of the community piling them on top of her. We don't feel that weight, but Mary no doubt did. This angel comes to her, betrothed virgin, and says, you'll be pregnant and Joseph will not be the father, but God is the father. She is in big trouble as far as the world goes, as far as her culture goes. But this is the best part of the whole thing. In spite of the danger and in spite of the wonder of it all, Mary is willing to trust and to be used by God. Look at verse 38. This is the best part. And Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I love that. Don't you? She hears this miraculous thing. She hears this thing that could endanger her very life. Not to mention she's a young girl and this angel has just said, you're going to have the Messiah. You're going to have the Son of God. And you're going to have to raise it. What a responsibility that would be, right? And her response is, here I am, slave of God. Here I am, the slave of May it be done to me, just as you've said. I like that posture of submission and obedience, don't you? I like that posture of humility, even when it's dangerous. Daryl Bach, who we mentioned earlier, sums it up nicely when he says this. She knows she is God's servant, so she will allow God to work through her as he wills. He can place her in whatever difficult circumstances he desires, for she knows that God is with her. And friends, that is what faith looks like. That's what real faith looks like. It submits. It obeys. Even when the calling is strange or difficult or dangerous. Real faith obeys. And beyond that, real faith submits and obeys even when the outcome is not pleasant. The, the story of Mary's life is really a story of suffering. And she has an encounter at the temple with a, with, a, with a guy who will tell her about this, that she will feel a piercing, and indeed she will, as she watches her son die. I want us to have faith like Mary had faith. A faith that obeys, even in the midst of danger, 
even in the midst of difficulty. Want us to have this posture of, here I am, I'm a slave. I'm a slave of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you have said. And then the angel departed her. So what child is this? It's the question we've been trying to answer throughout this month. What child is this? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior. And we all need a Savior. We all need a Savior. Even Mary. Even Mary needed a Savior. In fact, turn over in your Bible to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and start in verse 12. A child is this, he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, he's the Savior. And we all need a Savior, even Mary. Acts chapter 1 verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem. This is after Jesus has died for our sins, after he's been buried, after he's been raised from the dead, after he's ascended into heaven, given, given his followers a commission to go and be witnesses all over the world. This is after that. It says, after he had said these things, oh no, that's verse 9. Verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These were all with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. That's significant. That's significant that after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Mary is gathered together with the others who are followers of Jesus. She is with them and among them, praying with them and among them. Everyone needs a Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He's the only Savior. So my invitation to you is to repent of your sins and believe in Him, like these guys did, like even Mary did. Follow Jesus, trust Jesus, and be saved by Jesus alone. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us in these moments and in the hours and days and weeks to come to respond rightly to your word today. Thank you for being a God who shows grace who favors those who do not deserve favor, who gives to those who do not deserve gifts. Thank you for grace. It is our only hope. Thank you for grace because there is hope for us. And I pray today that you will give the gift of eternal life to men and women and boys and girls in this room that they will see clearly their sin, see clearly your righteous judgment against sin, that they will see clearly Christ's death on their behalf, that they will know that Jesus rose in victory over death and sin, and that they will respond with repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. 
pray that you'll save men and women and boys and girls today. And for those who have been saved, we pray that you give us the kind of humble, submissive obedience that Mary demonstrated. That we will have the kind of faith that obeys you even in difficult circumstances. And Father, I believe that there are difficult circumstances in this room today. Men and women who are wrestling with calls to go to places that are dangerous or difficult. To do things that the people around them will think are crazy as they follow you. God, I pray that you will encourage their hearts to bold, obedient faith through the story of Mary. Thank you. Thank you for working in her in such a way that encourages us to trust you. Have your way in our hearts. Use us for your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.